The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Ryan Holiday, author of Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Ryan Holiday back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Ryan Holiday is a strategist and writer. He dropped out of college at 19 to apprentice under Robert Greene, author of The 48 Laws of Power. He went on to advise many best-selling authors and multi-platinum musicians and later served as director of marketing at American Apparel. His company, Brass Check, has advised clients like Google and Taser, as well as many prominent best-selling authors. Ryan has written five previous books, including The Daily Stoic, 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living, Ego is the Enemy, which he's been on the podcast for for that, and The Obstacle is the Way, the companion to that, which is The Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph. And that's been translated into 17 languages and has a cult following among NFL coaches, world-class athletes, TV personalities, political leaders, and others around the world. His first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator, which the Financial Times called an astonishing, disturbing book, was a debut bestseller and is taught in colleges around the world. And his second book is the bestselling Growth Hacker Marketing, a primer on the future of PR marketing and advertising. And interesting fact, he lives on a ranch outside Austin, Texas, where he writes and works in between raising cattle, donkeys and goats. And in this book's acknowledgement, he specifically thanks his two goats named Buddy and Sugar. Ryan, congratulations on Perennial Seller and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I literally just came from a a livestock auction. (laughs) Oh, did you get some more? I bought two cows, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, good. Well, I hope Buddy and Sugar are doing well. And Buddy and Sugar are actually both miniature donkeys. I have goats. I didn't thank the goats. I'm thanking my two donkeys. You were very clear about that in this book. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, I've I've seen some pictures of them along the way. I think they're yours. I've seen one with a picture of you, so I'm pretty sure those are yours. Yeah, they're they're adorable. Well, we have two dogs at home, and I think that's where we're going to stop. But, yes, uh, <laughs> I would recommend that. Now, although my wife has a horse, so okay, you know, she's it's a very animal friendly home. So anyway, I should also share with the listener that you read two hundred to three hundred books 
a year. And it's very impressive. And also, it's really the basis for your phenomenal monthly newsletter where you share with all, I don't know how many, 80,000 of us now, 100,000, what you're reading and what you found particularly interesting. And to be quite honest with you, that's how I found out about this latest book. Oh, yeah, right. Well, look, I don't know if it's 300 a year, but I read a lot and I try to recommend them to the to the list. At a certain point, you stop counting. But it actually sort of goes to one of the things that I do talk about in the book, which is, you know, when I was thinking about becoming a writer, obviously the end goal there is to write books. And I thought, well, how am I going to tell people about these books when I write them? You know, you need a newsletter. And I thought no one is going to sign up for a newsletter from a person they've never heard of that doesn't have any books. So I I was like, how can I reach readers? And I ended up creating this newsletter that, you know, I think it started with 50 people and now it's like 81 or 82,000 people. And and yeah, it basically the way I monetize it is that six times over the last eight or nine years, I've sent out an email saying, hey, I know you guys like books. Here is one book from me. And that, you know, me at least trying to listen to my own advice. Yes, you, you talk about that in the book. And of course, I then said, I see what you're doing there. Because you said, hey, and then people want to help me promote the book. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Hey, he just did that to me. So that tingling means it's working, Ryan. Good, good. <laughs> Let me start with an opening, just, just one excerpt, and then we'll go into the book here. Toward the beginning, you say, how to make something last, whether it's for a few months more than the average or for a century, has been my lifelong fascination. It's always become a question central to my livelihood. Is there a common creative mindset behind work that lasts? How is it different from work that's popular one day and gone the next? How do such creators think about the vocabulary used to package their work? What kind of relationship do they have with their fans and followers? Is there a pattern to perennial sellers that we can learn from? So Ryan, Explain what a perennial seller is. Well, I think obviously the listeners of this this podcast should should have some idea being the number of people that are interested in books. You know, if you if you pull up the New York Times bestseller list right now and then you click on their methodology section where they talk about what kinds of bestsellers they they include and don't include, you'll notice that they say that they explicitly do not track what are called perennial sellers. This is an industry term for the kinds of books that might not tear up the charts when they come out. Perhaps it wasn't given a huge advance or it's not published by a celebrity, but it sells year in and year out. So my books are an example of this, right? My first book came out five years ago and it still sells you know, close to a thousand copies a month. My, my next book sells a little more than a thousand copies a month. You know, Each one of my titles sells hundreds or thousands of copies each week, actually, because they're, they are the kinds of books that people are recommending to each other. And so look, the reason the publishing industry even exists as a $70 billion a year business is not because they're really good at sensing an unknown person and turning them into a bestseller. In fact, the vast majority of books never earn back their advance. So the vast majority of books lose money. The reason the publishing industry is so profitable is because The Great Gatsby sells a half a million copies a year. And Good to Great sells a certain number of copies a year. And The 4-Hour Workweek has sold 100,000 copies a year every year for more than 10 years, right? So so the, the, the where, where the money is and the power in the publishing industry, and this is also true in music, in Hollywood, and then in, in business, it is... Can you stand the test of time 
and you sell week in and week out after the marketing has sort of fallen away. And so that's what the book is about. How do you create those kind of products? I think that's much more interesting and creatively fulfilling than, you know, trying to sell fidget spinners or, you know, adult coloring books or whatever the the trend of the moment is. Mm -hmm. When you introduce that at the beginning of the book, I just remember thinking there is no way you're going (laughs) to... You're going to be able to explain this, but you did. And I just thought, what an enormous problem or question to try and to try and tackle. So, good for you. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I don't think anyone sits down when they make something and they think, you know, I hope this just disappears a couple months after I'm finished, right? A lot of people behave that way. Well, yeah. That so it's like nobody is trying to do that. But then that's the fate of most creative work. And, you know, having worked with many, many authors and entrepreneurs and creators of all different types now, what I tend to see is that although they consciously don't want that to happen, unconsciously, most of their choices take them in that direction. So people make what gets them excited. And then only later do they think, hey, how am I going to get other people excited about this? So what I'm really pushing people to do is to think about trying to make something that lasts, that's meaningful, that's important, that as Jeff Bezos says, folk, that, you know, is one of the things that, you know, he says, focus on the things that don't change. I'm trying to just nudge people in that direction, as opposed to the sort of drifting, meandering, accidental direction that most of us tend to tend to inhabit as creators. You know, we go off in our cave and we make something. Like, you know, how many people are like, oh, everyone's doing a podcast. I should do a podcast, right? So they're thinking, what will this podcast do for me? What they're not sitting there thinking or doing is going, does the world need another podcast? Or what kind of podcast could I do that would be unique and special and interesting? They're already calling up their friends and asking them if they want to appear as a guest. So what they end up doing is making another interview podcast that, you know, is going to have to launch to an indifferent public. And so I'm just trying to urge people to think about these things and not, you know, like the podcasting ship has sailed. So, okay, if you want to break in, then you've got to, you know, have a compelling reason why they're going to let you on board. You know, you've got to, if you're going to make a book and there's, you know, a half million books published every year, well, why should anyone care about your book? And you've got to have an answer to that question. Yes, and I should add, because I'm a podcaster and I'm interested in this type of thing, you wrote a post within the last year entitled something like, please, for the love of God, please don't start a podcast or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) And you went into great depth about, it wasn't really saying don't do it, but it was much more about what you just said, about think about this. Think about what you're doing. Look, it's the same thing for books. Making a book is extraordinarily hard. Right. And getting people to care about your book is extraordinarily hard. So if you're going to do it, you should start with the right intentions and you should start with the right mindset. And if, you know, being willfully ignorant is a very dangerous position. And and I, I would say it's a very wasteful position. You know, the amount of books that I see people spend a year or two years of their life on for no reason, because no one ends up reading it, is very disappointing to me. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So I'm going to include a link to that 
article at on your show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com just so people understand because I think uh, having read the book now I'm thinking back about that article it was a lot of sort of the similar type of advice but it was just for the for the podcasters so your book only has four parts and I want to say what they are and then touch on a couple of them and it's the creative process a whole section on that and then positioning and then marketing which I, I would like to ask you a few extra questions about and then finally platform. So if we could, let me just walk through a couple things from each one of these that I think would be really interesting for the listener. And as it as it relates to the creative process, you mentioned that you had a friend who once said on Twitter or something that you should spend 20% of your time creating content and 80% of your time promoting it. And you said yes. that's that's terrible advice. And and you're you're alarmed at how many creators, not just of authors, but musicians and you know, businesses, how many just gloss over the creating? And, and you even mentioned lots of people want to be the noun without doing the verb. Yeah, well, look, that's a great <laughs> line from, from Austin Cleon, who I, who I love. And it, it's true. You know, people, the amount of people that I talk to they, that don't want to write a book, they want to have a book, is disturbing to me as someone who actually likes books. I don't see them as a fashion accessory, right? Um, <laughs> And, and so, you know, I, I don't know. I think the amount of people that come to my company, Brass Check, and, and they're like, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to write this book and I want to talk to you about the marketing. And it's like, well, you know, you're sort of assuming that you're going to write it, you know, and most people don't. And you're assuming you're going to write it well and that it's automatically going to be a success. None of which are assumptions that I'm willing to, to just take for granted because, I again, I know how hard it is. So, yeah, look, the most essential phase is not I have an idea for something. It's going to be, can I actually execute this vision? Can I actually make it real? And can I make something? It's like if you make something mediocre and then you attach really brilliant marketing to it, I'm not saying that you're not going to be able to trick people into buying it. You are. That happens. Their brilliant marketing compensates for crappy product. All the time, but, it but might only not get in recommended. the sh- right. But only in the short term, right? At the end of the day, all successful products are driven largely by word of mouth. Right. You know, somebody likes it, and they tell somebody else about it. And if your product doesn't have that, you're basically admitting that your marketing is this treadmill that you're going to have to be on forever, and that you're just going to have to run faster and faster and faster to keep it going. And in a weird way, the more people that try their product the more disappointed people they're going to be out in the world. And that's just a really crummy situation to put yourself in if it's avoidable. And so I, I just, I think that it is. And that's, that's why I, I urge people to start with, you know, have I actually made something that's great, that has the ability to be timeless, and frankly, that deserves to endure? And, and I'm, I'm not sure that's true for a lot of things. Yeah, and you you also talked about how I guess there's like this this plague of the easy button. Everyone just is looking for an easy button, and they're so seduced by shortcuts. Yes, that that's a problem. And, but also, you mentioned the, the question that almost no one asks as it relates to the creative process. I couldn't believe it. It's who is this for? 
Yeah, I think people people don't want to stop and actually think about who the audience for their product is. They just want to make it because it's not for other people. It's actually for their own ego, you know. And yeah, if you don't know who your audience is for your product or you don't have a stand in for that audience, I'm an early adopter, if you will. What are you doing? You're just you're you're appealing. Essentially, you're appealing to everyone and no one. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing from that first section of the book is I'd like to ask you to explain why ideas, which are so valued, why ideas are not really enough. Well, I mean, of course, they're not enough in the sense that, you know, an idea is not a book that people can buy or an idea is not a podcast that I can listen to. But yet everyone seems to think that's that's all you need. Well, everyone wants to get credit for the idea because that's the first thing. And they don't realize like, oh, actually, I have to go make this. Like an idea, especially in the social media age where it's like you can tell people about your idea for a book. You can tell them about the the book that you're starting or whatever it is. And you can get the congratulations. You know, you're basically cashing a check that uh, you don't have the funds for, you know. And, you know, look, I think I think you should treat every project in some ways, like a little bit of a conspiracy between you and your, you know, inspiration. It's like, I don't tell people about the books I'm thinking about. I tell people about the books that are almost done because what are the, what, not every idea is a good one. Not every book is going to get written. Not, not everything has the, the legs to go the distance. Mm-hmm. And you ta- also talk in your book about how some of the books you started were very different when they when they yeah, it always changes. You never know. You, you the last thing you'll have wanted to do is go get a bunch of people excited about a topic that you had to abandon because it doesn't work. Right, right. Well, let's move on to positioning, the second part of the book. And you say that today, in order to have a chance at people's attention, your project has to seem as good or or better than all the others. So you say there's three critical variables that determine whether that's going to happen. That's the positioning, the packaging, and the pitch. Can you walk the listener through those three Ps? Well, what I'm what I'm talking about is the the transitionary phase when you go from the sort of raw creative making to when you start to think about, you know, what's the title of this thing or what's the name of this product or what is the, you know, what's the cover going to look like? What's the movie poster going to be? What's the name of the album? You know, what's the What's the color of the box for the product going to be? Um, and so, you know, I'm talking about that. I call it, you know, your pitch, your positioning, and your packaging. These are these are going to change for different products, right? Because different products come in different shapes and sizes and such. But the key is, you have to treat every one of those decisions as being equally important as say, it's like the cover of the book is just as important and just as much a creative decision as chapter seven or chapter 14 or, you know, what material you used to build uh, the countertops in your coffee shop or whatever, right? So what I'm really talking about is the art of what do we you know, what are we calling this thing? What's the right way to tell people? What's what's the in on the on the project? And and this has to be thought of early. You know, you, these aren't things you can pay someone to do on Fiverr or, you know, these aren't these aren't things that you can outsource to the publisher or the studio. Not if you want them to be done at the level of quality that you expect as the creator. This section of the book has special resonance for me, and that's because you talked about 
you've got to, to hand it off. You've got to bring an editor into your process. Separate point of view. And the reason why, and I may be the only one that has experienced this, but this is going to be the 132nd interview on the, the podcast. And over time, I've been more inclined to want to interview authors that have gone through a major publisher. And the mm-hmm. reason why is because it's my sense they've gone through a rigorous editorial process. And several times when I've interviewed an author and the book was, as I like to say, written even better than it had to be, almost yep. every time the author said, oh, that was not the book I started with. I had two editors and I you know, went through all this. And then I've had some self-published books that I've read, a couple I didn't interview, but it, it's, it's really noticeable to me. Now, I've had some self-published books on the show that have been terrific, but I think that's the, the exception. I think with self-publishing, it, in some ways, it requires much more discipline. Like if I think about a world in which, like, it, you know, the, the complaint of creators is that the editors or the suits or, you know, whoever is like, the man is telling you what you can and can't do, and that this somehow stifles creativity or, or whatever. And it, it is true to, to a sense, there can be really pedantic annoyance, but if I imagine a world in which creators were allowed to do whatever they wanted and there was never an editor or a producer or a boss forcing them to make changes or forcing them to jump through certain hoops, what I think we would see is a lot of really mediocre first drafts masquerading as finished products, yes. right? yes. Like Perennial Seller went through four or five submissions. So that's not drafts. In traditional publishing, it's submission is like a legal term. That's when you go, here is the book, I'm submitting it, and then the publisher reads it and says, okay, yes or no, you fulfilled your contractual obligation to us, and we are willing to publish this in its in roughly this form. So it, They can reject your book. You know, if I sell a book about, you know, ancient philosophy and then I turn in a book about penguins, they can say, this isn't it. We're not accepting this. You have to give us the money we gave you back. So the submission is a very important part of the process and it's a big transition point. And so the idea of submitting it and then you needing to take their feedback, and you don't have to listen to all of it, but just the idea that like you, me as the author does not have final say over when it's done or not, that there's another person who can say, hey, you didn't do what we set out to do here, you're not there yet, is ultimately, while frustrating, I think essential in terms of creating something great. And there's a reason they use the word submit. Yes, of course. In the same way that an album hasn't, you know, is engineered and then mastered, I think it's an equally important phrase in publishing. Yeah. Ryan, before we move on to the, the marketing section, can you explain the concept of one sentence, one paragraph, one page? It's a big value bomb <laughs> that you dropped, and I'm already going to steal it in my own world. <laughs> Good. I'm sure I stole it from someone else. I mean, the point is, I think every project needs to be described, both like not necessarily before you start, but some point in the creative process, in one paragraph, in one sentence, and in one page. Being forced to describe what you're making in this language. I, I, I like to do it in the third person, not as me, but as a person describing this work. And it requires me to really hone my pitch, 
it forces me to think about this product from the audience's perspective and not mine. And that's where you say, this is a blank that does blank. This helps people blank. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the part where you talked about how at, at Amazon, they're required to write a, um, like a, a news release for any project they're pitching yep. as if to, to bring the future to the present and, and sort of start with the end in mind. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the point is you have to know what this thing is going to, what this thing is going to be, and you have to be able to explain it. And if you can't, you're not ready yet. So let's move on to marketing. And can you explain for the listener what marketing is as defined in your book, Growth Hacker Marketing? Yeah, I mean, my definition of marketing in that book is basically anything that gets or keeps customers is marketing. So if giving your product away starts bringing paid customers through the door, that's marketing. Whereas if, if buying lots of ads isn't converting into customers, it's not marketing. It's a waste of money. And so I think a lot of people think marketing is this thing when in truth marketing is, is an end. You know, It is keeping customers in your business or it's bringing them through the door. And so I, I have a much more expansive sort of creative approach to marketing, willing to do basically anything and everything. And I think other creators should be too. Well, I think it's also much more modern approach than sure. what, what I run into. But Ryan, Holiday, isn't a great product going to market itself? I mean, look, I, I think the idea that uh, you know, if you build it, they will come is probably one of the most insidious, damaging myths on the planet. Thank you. Very true. But you know, you talk about how CEOs delegate marketing to other people and explain why that is a huge mistake to you. Well, you know, look, like if you're some huge celebrity or, you know, you're the CEO of a company or whatever, there does come a situation where you can hire someone on your behalf, they can pitch you. You know, if I'm working on a Tony Robbins book and I call up a podcast that I know and say, Hey, do you want to have Tony Robbins on? They're like, Oh, that's amazing. But if I, you know, call up and say, do you want to have John Doe on? They're like, why are you bothering me with this? Right? Like, but if John Doe reached out and developed a relationship with that person, it could, it could work. So really that's the key then is, is sort of where do you fit in the hierarchy? And, and I think the more humble you are, the better. And, and are you willing to do the work yourself? Mm -hmm. You mentioned a quote from Ben Horowitz, the venture capitalist, and can you explain the concept behind his comment about, you know, there is no silver bullet. You're going to have to use a lot of lead bullets. I sense that there's just like the easy button, there's this, you know, search for like the fountain of youth, there's the search for the silver bullet, and I haven't found yeah, one People yet. want the magical package, like, oh, give me the package that did the four-hour work week, or give me the package that sold all these books or all these products for so-and-so. It doesn't work that way. It's here's the specific product. Here's the specific best ways to reach people for that product. Here's what we can afford. Here's what we have the bandwidth for. That's how I would think about it. But I got the impression that certainly in my world, I see this, but you, you must as well, where people want a pill that will help them lose 100 pounds overnight. They want something really simple. Right. And, and it's in a world where the marketing is getting even more complex. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's talk about advertising, because I'm sure that would get the hackles up of some folks. You, you mentioned that anything that requires advertising to survive will, on a long enough timeline, cease to be economically feasible. Explain. I guess what my point is that 
couple of things. So one, word of mouth is always more powerful than advertising. Yes. And two, advertising, I think the big myth with advertising is that it's a good way to launch a product. Right. Right. I, I try to ask people, you know, what was the last product you bought because of advertising? Most people don't have an answer, but almost no one has the answer to what was the last product you you bought and discovered because of advertising. Right. If you're sitting, you know, you're sitting on your couch and your favorite restaurant has a commercial that says that they're, you know, there's having some new item or it's it's an enormous sale, that advertising can work. But very rarely are you going to see a commercial for something you've never heard of and then get up and go try it. That's just not really how humans work. And so this is especially true for books. You know, once your book has sold a million copies, perhaps there's some advertising you can put on top of it. If you already have a huge audience, marketing can more can help you more effectively and quickly reach those customers to let them know about this new product but they're not selling you as a person to a group of strangers and then saying buy this book from them right now yeah it was it became very clear about how it's it's an excellent accelerant yes but not for starting the fire yeah exactly it's it's exactly right it's it's more firewood it's not lighter fluid okay so let's go from fire to drugs you mentioned that the art of marketing is a matter of finding your addicts can you tell the story about the rapper 50 cent yeah well so this is something that i got when i was robert's research assistant you know I, i listened to this i listened to the many many hours of recordings that he'd done his his mo as a drug dealer was that he would rob rival crews and then he would take the product that he stole from them and give it away as free samples. Um, and like he's literally finding the people that he can make addicted to his product. And, and you know, if, if you take Kevin Kelly's idea of the thousand true fans, you're really finding people who are addicted to doing what you do. You're not pitching total strangers. You're not pitching people who are reserved and resistant to trying what you're doing. You're you're trying to find the people who just can't get enough, and 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 that's the that's what marketing is really about. Stop trying to convert everybody. Right. So we got to talk about PR, and can you explain why, in your experience, the value of traditional PR is overrated or it's overestimated? Well, you know, look, if you just take the simple fact that most newspapers are losing money and they can't even get people to pay to read that newspaper. Why do you think that they're going, why do you think you should spend a lot of money trying to convince the writers for that paper to write about your product because they're going to have such better luck convincing those customers to buy your thing? You know, it just, it, it just doesn't work. And it takes an incredible amount of time. And again, people think that PR is this magic bullet, right? They, they hear, oh, so-and-so was on the front page of the New York Times and it sold millions of books. Well, it might have been the right article for the right product at the right time. You know, it could have been any number of factors. And the idea that you're going to chase this like some white whale, I just, I, I tend to find that people who are focused on traditional PR do so at the expense of a lot of low-hanging fruit around them. Like, for instance, yes, you could get Forbes or an entrepreneur to write about you, or you could just work hard and Get an, a get a gig writing for Forbes and Entrepreneur, and you could write about yourself. You know, and which one of those things is more inside your control, and which one of those things is going to be more positive and favorable to your product. So yeah, but let's let's go further. Let's talk about what you call trading up the chain. You know, we're not saying all PR is a fruitless you know exercise. 
can you explain why you should start small? Yeah, as it relates to getting press. You know, rather than going straight for the top. Yeah, it's like, look, don't pitch Good Morning America. Do something interesting on the internet. And what you'll find is that Good Morning America employs a number of people whose sole job is to see what's happening on the internet and invite those people onto their shows. So I've just found that the easiest way to get media and PR is to go do interesting things and to start those stories on the internet and to watch as they get traded up the chain. And then the next thing you know, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or CNN is asking you, do you want to come on and talk about something? Right. And like you even said, take the money that you were going to spend on that or PR or advertising and just set it on fire. Yeah, it would be interesting, right? If someone lit, you know, let's say your advertising budget is $20,000 and you saw an author light $20,000 on fire on Instagram, it would probably get a lot of attention. You'd probably get a bunch of followers out of it that you would get to keep Whereas, you know, your 30 second appearance on some morning radio show is, you know, disappears into the wind. Right, right. So just to be clear for the listener, we're not recommending dealing in drugs and we're not recommending actually burning currency. Yes, <laughs> so, kind of. It's not. A, there's worse ideas. Well, actually, there are ways to burn the money other than actually yes. setting it on fire. Towards the end, you talk about the importance of a platform. And can you explain what you mean by building a platform and why you need one and why the band Iron Maiden is such an excellent example. Well, look, this goes to where we open, which is the idea of who are you selling your work to? Who are the fans that you are going to with this work? And if you're not cultivating that both before your launch and as part of the launch in marketing, you're you're taking a huge risk and you're leaving a lot of potential, you know, loyal fans on the on the table. So look, you look at a band like Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden hasn't been on the radio and the band's been around for 40 years. They've probably been on the radio for 30 years. But I, you know, I saw them in San Antonio a couple of weeks ago. It was a sold out show in San Antonio with 15 or 20,000 people. You know, they, they've got more streams on Spotify than Madonna does. This is a band that they know who their crowd is. They know who their audience is and they have a direct relationship with that audience. And that's what you've got to cultivate as a creative person. Like you with this podcast, talk to your listeners on a daily slash weekly basis. There's no station that can fire you. You know, there's no blacklist you could be put on that would prevent you from being able to do that. And that's very, very powerful and ultimately a great insurance policy. And you also talked about how Kevin Hart, this is so interesting, his career wasn't going where he wanted it to. And he went on the road and he started doing a lot of stand up and he was capturing email addresses. Can you talk about why building an email list is so crucial to building a platform? And also contrast that with the big social media following. Why is I was so delighted to see you really focus on why the email list is so important. Look, so the average Facebook post is re- reaches about 10% of the given followers that you have. So if you, you know, you somehow I hooker by crook assemble a million Facebook fans, you think that you have a million fans, but actually you have less than 100,000 fans uh, at any given time, uh, unless you want to pay Facebook for the privilege of reaching those other 900,000. And it's very, very expensive. Reaching that audience that you helped build. Yes, exactly. I mean, look, it's probably one of the greatest business capitalistic bait and switches in history. It's, it's as brilliant as it is horrifying. But I think, you know, with an email... The, the only impediment between you and reaching your people through email 
is whether they open it or not, right? And so, you know, the open rate on email might be 50% or might be 5%, but it's on you. You control that. And there's no gatekeeper who says, whoa, sorry, we're going to charge you for access to these people. And, And look, of all the different mediums, email is the one that has stood the test of time the most, right? Twitter's been here for like 10 years. Facebook's been here, you know, going on 15 years. But but Twitter could go out of business tomorrow. It could get it could get bought by someone and shut down. You know, it's a publicly traded company. It can go to zero. And that's that's something to to keep in mind. That email is a technology, it's a system, but it's not owned by one person. And so it's ultimately the, the I think the more perennial of the mediums. Yeah, and it was interesting. You, you talked about Michael Hyatt's book platform and and how a lot of these creators now, I guess the publishers or the the music companies, they want to know right off the bat what kind of tribe do you have? What how many people are you talking to already? Yeah, exactly. Look, that's the first question that you'll get asked by a publisher. What's your platform? And and that's the that's a question you get asked by an investor too. You know, who are you selling this thing to? Who's your audience? And you've got to know. So, Ryan, if readers took only one thing away from this book, what would you hope it would be? Look, making something that lasts is the highest and I think the only true aim of the creative profession. And most people think that's what their goal is, but almost none of their decisions are actually in line with that. And so I've, you know, I think what I've tried to build a book around is is some a methodology and a system for 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 doing that. Well said. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? I guess I, I have to be careful saying yeah. that because you've got a lot of clients who are authors. No, you know, Jeff Goins is a really good book that I would encourage people to read called Real Artists Don't Starve. Oh, yes. I think I've it's heard great. Uh-huh. What am I reading right now? Oh, I'm reading uh, the, the Senator Ben Sass's book about uh, the decline of the American adult. I think it's really interesting. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, so I'd, I'd recommend those two. Yeah, and I think I've heard in that book he talks about why emotional scar tissue is a good thing. Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> Great. So, Ryan, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book and sign up for your this phenomenal newsletter? Yeah, so you can just go to ryanholiday.net, all the stuff there. I think I'm at Ryan Holiday on pretty much every social media platform. And then you can check out my books basically anywhere books are sold. Okay, great. The name of the book is Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. The author is Ryan Holiday. Ryan, thank you very much for coming back onto the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.